Well, my whole life I've been wondering what the Sunday after Roe versus Wade being overturned would be like. I thought we might smile more, but I guess I should have known we are right where we are. Could we? I mean, it is a victory for life. 50 years in the making. And yet so much work to be done. So much work to be done. Well, last week was Father's Day. Dads, did, you don't have to answer, but if anybody took one of those father's report cards, um, I, would, I was brave, and I took three of them. And my children did evaluate. And I did find some areas of improvement. I... 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 I uh, actually found it to be um, a refreshing exercise. Thank you. And I'm going to strive to do better in the places where you graded me poorly. It actually was really good. If you didn't do that because you were hesitant last week or whatever, again, it's not something you have to do. I would never want to say, you have to do this or you're not a good father. That is not what I'm saying. But it was helpful to me, and it's going to be helpful ongoing. I can see that already. I hope you will consider taking one if you haven't. If you weren't here last week or whatever, they're just back there, kind of where we usually keep the daily bread, just around the corner on that wall. Go ahead and pick up one for each of your kids. All right. Are you guys ready to hear the word? Word of the Lord, or do we need to like take a break or something? I don't know. It feels so heavy. Are you ready? That was pretty good. I'll take it. Well, we've been in Philippians, and Philippians is—it's such a powerful book. It's so short. It's such a powerful letter. But we've been in search of joy. We've been in search of joy. Now, I've been personally on this quest this summer. To find joy again. It seems that many of us, and myself included, have, have somehow lost sight of the joy of the Lord through all of the divisions, all of the difficulties in the past couple years. And I want to find it again. I, I, I felt like Philippians was the right place to go to do that. And I have not been disappointed. So in Philippians, you know... We've been told so much about joy, but we've been going through it, and we found seven things so far, and today we're going to find another. I want to repeat those seven, and then we will begin again, if you haven't been part with us in the Philippians series up till now. And if you haven't, I encourage you to go to our website. If you'd like to, uh, all of our sermons are on there. You can go back and listen. So number one, joy begins with humility. Joy begins with humility. Number two, Christians partnering together brings joy. Number three, the gospel advancing brings joy. The good news advancing brings joy. Number four, joy and unity go together. Number five, suffering for Christ brings joy. Number six, 
Joy is found when we put others above ourselves. And number seven, joy is found when we daily submit our lives to Jesus and become light bringers. Those are the seven ideas about joy that I feel like we have uncovered as we've gone through Philippians. And now today, we start with Philippians chapter 3. But before we read scripture, what do we do? We pray always. So let's pray together. God, as we open up your word today with an expectation that you will speak to us, we believe that the Bible is your inspired word, that you inspired the writers to write down what they wrote. And now, God, we also understand that the reading of your word is also an inspired act. It needs the inspiration of you, Holy Spirit, so that we can correctly understand what your word means for us today. Speak to us, Lord. Keep us within the bounds of, of what you would have us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, we encounter one of the most critical pieces of theological understanding in the entire Bible. Did you catch that? It's interesting because last week was like Paul's travel notes, who's he sending where? Which seems like, what does that have to do with us? Like, I'm going to send Timothy, but not yet. I am going to send Epaphroditus back earlier than you expected because he got sick. And here's, what, here's why that's happened. And we're all like, what is he talking about? And then he goes right from that into this section we're going to read today that is arguably one of the most profound and concise statements of what the gospel actually is in real life and what it is not. This passage of scripture is powerful, critical. In fact, it's critical to not misunderstanding the good news of Jesus Christ. This passage is critical. And if you understand the 11 verses we're looking at today, if you just understood these 11 verses, it would go a long way toward understanding the entire revelation of God throughout all of human history. Just throwing that out there. Did I build it up enough? Now there's some difficult stuff on these verses we're going to read. And some of it is complex and compact. And some of it seems like it should be in just the first century, and why, how does it apply to us today? Well, you can imagine. Something that is as important and critical as what I've just built up in only 11 verses is going to probably be compact and complex. That means we're going to have to do some significantly careful exegesis. We're going to need to make sure we are reading out of Scripture that we are not putting our preconceived notions reading into Scripture. Remember that fancy word I just said, exegesis? I, I always explain that word whenever I use it because it's such an academic word. Exegesis. Jesus means study or deep study. Exa is the Greek prefix meaning out of. I always remember that when I think of an ant. An ant has an exoskeleton. Its skeleton is on the outside. Right? Exegesis. Deep study out of. Right? The opposite of exegesis is eisegesis. E-I-S. You can imagine the, pre the Greek prefix eis means into. 
So eisegesis means deep study into. It's when you bring your own thought and you stick it in Scripture. It's when you have a preconceived notion about what a Scripture means before you even read it. Do you see the difference? I always hope, I always endeavor, I always have been trying to help you understand we must always be reading out of Scripture, not into it. Fair enough? Today, a passage like today, it's critically that we make sure we are reading out of, not into. Because this passage has been debated for thousands of years. And all Scripture has been debated for thousands of years. But this one is special. This one is special. So, let's read it. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. I encourage you to look at it in your Bible. It will be on the screen, but I'd rather you were in the Bible. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Those men who do evil. Those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God. Who glory in Christ Jesus. And who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. The Word of the Lord. Hmm. Well, the first verse, at least, seems not that hard to understand. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Hey, we don't have to do that. The word rejoice. What is it? Do you remember? Rejoice is the verb form of joy. So rejoice means to actually, it's an action. Joy in action. That's what rejoice is. So when you think about the word rejoice, it sounds like, like one of those churchy words, like hallelujah. Like what? Like Somebody who's never been in church before and be saying, praise the hallelujah. They're going like, what are you? You know, I mean, I've always been an advocate of when you sing a word in a worship song, you should know what it means. Right? By the way, hallelujah means praise Yahweh. Yahweh is the name I am. So you're praising I am. Hallelujah. The Yah is the Yahweh at the end. Hallelujah is praise. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Now you know that. 
That was for free, disconnected from sermon. All right, so whenever you look at words in Scripture, whenever you see words, you should know what they mean. Rejoice means joy in action. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, it's funny because, as I just said, Paul has already said this to us in Philippians. Like, 20 times. He's already said this. In fact, he said it so much that Paul even acknowledges he's said it too much. <laughs> uh, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you. I, mean, I love that. I mean, he knows he's said it a lot. But the last part of this verse, I think, is really important and worth writing down. Because the last part is the a thing about joy. It is a safeguard for you. A safeguard. Do you understand that joy, the kind of joy that takes the noun and turns it into an action, rejoicing, is a safeguard for you. If you've been stuck in a place that is not a joyful place, and by the way, I have been. I have been stuck in a non-joyful place through COVID, and I'm trying to get out of it. Like, I'm, I'm grabbing onto Scripture, I'm grabbing onto the promises of Philippians and saying, I want my joy back. I want to be revived again. I'm praying to God, like Psalm 51, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Have you prayed Psalm 51 lately? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Then, then I will be able to set wrongdoers straight and just read through that. Read Psalm 51 if you need a blast of joy. It's powerful. Rejoicing is a safeguard for you. That's number eight. Rejoicing is a safeguard for you. Now, this is the verse of the, of the 11 we're looking at today. This is the one that's easy. <laughs> the question that I would ask you is, and the question that Paul is really asking us is this. Safeguard against what? Now, this is where the next ten verses are the answer. A safeguard against what? Well, I think it could be a safeguard against a lot of things. But it is the text of this passage that determines what Paul is talking about, not what I pull out of the air and not what my opinion is. The safeguard that Paul is talking about is everything that comes out next. What does Paul talk about next? Well, let's look. Chapter 3, verse 2. Because the very next thing he says is this. Watch out for those dogs. <laughs> what? Watch out for the dogs? I mean, okay. That's a strange thing to say. And, and then it goes from strange to really strange. Those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. I knew it. You're not supposed to get body piercings. <laughs> That would be a misreading of this text by taking it out of context. Did you get that? This has nothing to do with body piercings. Of any kind. Okay? Male or female. That's not what this is about. So what in the world? Watch out for those. This is... Why is he saying that? I mean, that's like pretty harsh. In fact, 
That, when I read this, it reminded me of Jesus in Matthew 23. When he was talking to the Pharisees, do you remember what Jesus said? Let me, let me just give you some of the words Jesus used specifically to describe the Pharisees. Hypocrites, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, snakes, brood of vipers. Go back and read Matthew 23. It's like a... It's like a, a, a how to insult your enemies guy. <laughs> I mean, and this is from Jesus. I mean, now you better make sure you understand why Jesus was saying that. You don't just get to go call people these things because you feel like it. Okay? You need to go back and read Matthew 23. I'm just saying, Jesus found it appropriate to say things like that to certain people. Now, Paul is taking that same tact. Watch out for those dogs those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Weird. Who's Paul talking about? Oh, do you remember? It's been a couple weeks, but do you remember back in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17? Do you remember Paul, in his introduction to his letter, he said why he was in prison. You remember that? He's writing this letter from prison. And he said in the, at, the, at the beginning, in, first, in the first chapter, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Remember, just as a reminder, Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel, and there was a group of people that were also preaching Jesus as the Messiah, who were opposed to Paul. In fact, not only were they celebrating Paul's imprisonment, but from the way Paul says that, it seems likely they had a hand in putting him in prison. Did you read that? And now we see in chapter 3 of this letter, I think it's very likely Paul is now returning to describing the people who preach Christ but are opposed to his message about Christ. How could that be? How could there be people that preach Christ but are actually opposed to Paul's message? And what is Paul's message? The gospel. And what does the word gospel mean? Good news. Good news. Somehow, there are people who are preaching about Christ but they're not preaching the good news about Christ. That's interesting. Well, what is going on here? Again, back in Philippians 3, 2 and 3. Let's look at that again. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Do you understand? Paul is setting up two groups of people here. The, the groups that follow his gospel that he sent to them. And the Philippians are part of this group. And he's comparing them against this other group who's somehow preaching Jesus, but they're not preaching the gospel. And he's saying, we are the ones who worship by the Spirit. In fact, we are the true circumcision. What the what in the world is Paul talking about? Do you know what circumcision is? You clip the tip. I mean, that's what it is. And kids, you can ask your parents about that later tonight. So, it'd be great for family devotion time. So, the, 
you got to wonder, like, why in the world is Paul bringing this up? Why in the world is Paul bringing this up? And why is he saying that those who believe in the gospel that he's been preaching are the circumcision? What in the world is going on here? Because I don't know about you, but that's not the way I want to be known by. What are you? I'm the circumcision. What are you talking about, Paul? That's crazy. But he says, we are the ones who glory in Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? It means the other group does not. The other group does not glory in Jesus Christ. We are the ones who put no confidence in the flesh. Ooh, there's that word flesh. That is a very misunderstood word. Because Paul is using flesh to mean something more than just the meat of our bodies. Okay? When Paul uses the word flesh in Scripture, it has a range of meanings. But the idea of flesh is this idea of our own ability to do good things. Our own ability in ourselves, in our body, to do good things. As if there was a way that we could, through our own effort, do the kind of things that bring favor from God. Flesh is like a worldly way of looking at everything. And by the way, I think most of what we talk about, both in our country and in the church as it relates to politics, is flesh. We use worldly arguments. As if somehow it is these actual hands that are going to actually make an eternal difference. Really? about this idea of fleshly actions. So, look where Paul goes next. A little bit unexpected. So, I've got so many questions. I mean, you should have so many questions right now as we look ready to go next. Why is Paul so agitated by these people? That's a question. And by the way, why is he so agitated by these people when he's already said they're preaching Christ? Do you find that exceedingly interesting? If you just think about this for a second, Paul called them dogs. He didn't just call them dogs, by the way. He just, he just outright called them evil. He just straight up, you're evil. Mutilators of the flesh. Like, Paul is not holding anything back. And he's talking about circumcision. He's talking about the flesh. Can we just like get all of these questions down to like the key question? I think we can. Because I think the key question that Paul is trying to answer here is this. How are we saved? How are we saved? And I think there's really only two answers to that question. Some, or in fact many people would say there's more than two. But I'm suggesting from Paul, he's saying there's only two ways to be saved. Okay? Two ways, and only one of them actually works. The first way is, are, are we saved by putting our faith in Jesus? The second possibility is, are we saved by putting our faith in Jesus 
plus something else. Those are the two. Those are the two. Now, of course, there's a third option that Paul doesn't even mention, which is, can we be saved by putting our faith in something else than Jesus? He's already answered that one's not true. The question at play here is, can you be saved, are we saved by faith in Jesus, or are we saved by faith in Jesus plus something else? That's the critical question Paul's answering. It goes without saying, Paul has already implied this strongly, there is no saving faith outside of Jesus. Fair enough. Everybody got that? So now to the key question. Which one is it? Are you saved by putting your faith in Jesus? Or are you saved by putting your faith in Jesus plus something else? That's the key question or answer in this passage of Scripture. It is extremely likely that the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh, the evil men whom Paul is referring to, are the same people whom he spoke about in some other letters. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, there's one particular letter that Paul just like goes all in against these people. Like the whole letter is just, the whole letter is just against this group. Anybody know what that letter is? Nobody wants to say it, because in case you're wrong, you'll be embarrassed. The letter is Galatians. Galatians is an entire letter. You want to talk about circumcision for like, like circumcision is in Galatians like 20 times. He's going on and on about circumcision. The whole book of Galatians is Paul's tirade against this group of people. In Philippians, we've got just a little blurb. This little section of Philippians is like the cliff note versions of Galatians. And Galatians is the cliff note versions of Romans. That's a helpful way of thinking through this. So, Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, now you've got to understand Galatians to understand this thing in Philippians, so hang with me. Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to go on missionary journeys throughout all of Asia and Greece, and even as far as Rome, we think he even made it all the way to Spain. Okay? He was led by the Holy Spirit to go on these journeys. And wherever he would go, he would preach the gospel and he would plant a church. And once the church got up and running, he would go to the next town and preach the gospel again and plant a church. Okay, you know all that. Part of Paul's journey took him through the region of Galatia. So Galatia was not a city. It's a little confusing because if you read, like, well, Philippians was a Greek city. Galatians, Galatia was a region. So think of Galatia like Minnesota. It's like a region. And there are cities dotted throughout the region. So Paul went through the region of Galatia, and he preached at a bunch of cities, and started a bunch of churches in the region of Galatia. Then, he would move on to the next city. Now, following Paul was a group. A group from Jerusalem, who claimed to be Christians, but when they would come behind Paul and they would speak to those brand new Christians in those brand new churches, they would say this, Oh, you heard about Jesus from Paul. Good. Paul's really good. He preaches a really good message about Jesus. Now let me tell you the rest of the story that you need to know. They would affirm Paul. But then they would say, Paul didn't tell you everything you needed to know to be saved. He neglected one small part. 
And what was that one small part? In order to be saved, you must be a Jew. In order to be saved, you must be a Jew. And how do you know if someone's a Jew? That is the sign. Well, that's, doesn't that seem weird? Well, before you get all like against these Judaizers, consider the source material that these Judaizers were using. Look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. This is the reason why the Judaizers were doing what they were doing and saying what they were saying. It comes right from the Bible, Genesis 17. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh, will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now imagine if you're a first century Jew. You believe in Jesus. You believe he was the promised king, the son of David. You believe that he rose from the dead. What do you do with Genesis 17? What do you do with Genesis 17? There was a group of early Jewish Christians that said, you know what to do with Genesis 17? Apply it. Well, who do you apply it to? Well, Paul's like walking all around the Greek world getting all these Gentiles to become believers in Jesus. The answer is, you've got to make them Jew. That's the answer. I don't know if they had like a portable circumcision kit. This was before... This was before the understanding of germs. <laughs> Just saying. That's a thought maybe you didn't need to remember. I mean, they, they, they probably went around, like, doing that. Now imagine if you're a Gentile, you don't know anything about the Jewish faith, and the Philippians, by the way, they were Gentiles, remember? Imagine these Philippians, these Gentiles who grew up as Greeks. And these other, this other group comes in and is like, let me tell you, Paul was right, but there's something he didn't tell you. you got to do that. Could you be like, imagine what they'd be, they'd be like, say, what now? Come again? Say, now you want me to do what now? Or I don't get to go to heaven if I do that? I don't get to go be with Jesus forever in the kingdom of God unless I do that? Does, that? does that sound right to you? That's right, look. And then they open up Genesis 17. See? Everlasting covenant. There it is. So let's go. Let's make this, let's make this happen. I mean, after all, we don't want you to go to hell. Do you want to go to hell just because you refuse to do a simple physical thing? That's a compelling argument. Well, I'm not real sure about it, and it doesn't sound very fun, but I guess we can do that. I guess. 
look at Acts 15.1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers. And I quote, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Like there it is in Acts. Like straight up, you can't be saved unless you are circumcised. Now today, this seems so like first century. Like, when's the last time you were concerned? Oh, I better make sure I'm circumcised. Like, it just doesn't come up in, in conversation today. But this was like a huge debate in the first century church. Like, Acts chapter 15, if you keep reading, look at the next verse. That's 15.1. Look at the next verse. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate. I bet it did. See, even in Acts, it, it records this debate between Paul and this group. And if you keep reading chapter 15, they have the first church council, the first organized argument in the church happens because of this question. This is the first big ban between Christians. Which is right. After all, scripturally, Genesis 17 is clear. Can you, can you just hear the debate that would have happened that day? Look, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read the Bible, Genesis chapter 17, and then Paul gets up and said, "I agree with Genesis 17, but I want to show you some people who are Gentiles who have been converted, and then watch them display the obvious spirit of God that is upon them, and that they're like, uh, that looked pretty good. I don't think that was a show, right? So what do we do? So here's Paul." Sending this letter to the church in Philippi, which was a long ways from Jerusalem, warning them there is a group of people coming. They're going to tell you something that's not right. They're going to say that the gospel is Jesus plus something. And in this case, it's Jesus plus circumcision, which is, of course, the sign of becoming a Jew. You see, the entire question revolves around what is saving faith? What is saving faith? Can I give you a possible definition of saving faith? Saving faith is a settled trust that leads to obedience. A settled trust that leads to obedience. You know, I'm actually pretty happy that Paul had to face this opposition, even though for Paul, it must have torn his heart out. To have to constantly be looking behind him at churches he planted and watching them go astray. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for Paul. And yet I'm so happy he had to face that opposition, because it forced Paul to write down a clarity of position about this. Going back to Philippians chapter 3. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God. We who glorify in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh. Confidence in what we can do as being efficacious for salvation. Efficacious is a fancy word. It means something that works. Now let's keep reading. 
Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, and I love that last word, faultless. Wow. Wow. Faultless. Paul just claimed he had legalistic righteousness that was to the level of faultless. Why would Paul go into all that? As a way of saying to those people that were coming behind him, you claim that you must be a good Jew to be saved. I claim I was the best Jew and I was lost. I was the best you could possibly be. I had the best ancestry and I had the best teaching and I had the best rule following of anybody ever to the point where I was without fault and I was completely, utterly lost. That's why Paul lists his credentials, his Jewish credentials. That's what he's doing. These are Paul's credentials before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Before his life made, he repented and made a 180 degree change. These are his credentials before. See, Paul himself was the best example of a righteous Jew. And now read on. Verse 7, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So I have to say this from, from seminary. I had my favorite New Testament professor who is going to be our speaker at family camp this year. Timothy Dwyer. Come to family camp. My favorite seminary professor said this, if you, whenever you preach on Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 11, he said, you should say this. The Greek word for rubbish is skubala. Skubala. And do you know what that word translates into? Rubbish is the nice version. Do you know, if you would have said skubala, in the first century world, do you know what most people would have translated that word to be? They wouldn't have heard rubbish. I'll say it the churchy way. They would have heard human excrement. That word in Koine first century Greek means human excrement. I consider it all a pile of It wasn't missing words. Sometimes we like gloss over, and even in our translations, it's been glossed over so we can all be nice. You guys, Paul wasn't being nice in this passage of scripture. He was telling you the truth. 
Everything in your life other than Christ is a pile of rubbish. Well, that was hard. That's good stuff, guys. That's good stuff. And then verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. You guys, you can't earn salvation through works of the flesh. There is nothing you can do with your hands, nothing you can do with your body, nothing you can do in this life that will earn you salvation. Nothing. Nothing. Not even something good. Because truthfully, the idea of being in covenant with God through circumcision, that's a, that's a godly idea. Literally, God, God said it, right? But Paul is saying, you need to understand when Christ came, everything changed. You understand? There's an Old Testament and a New Testament, right? And I've been telling you this, but just as a reminder, the word testament means covenant. The word testament means contract. There's an old one, and there's a new one. The old one has been fulfilled by the new one. This is straight up Salvation 101, covenant theology. Jesus is the new covenant. The fulfillments of salvation are not found in the old covenant any longer. It's why there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. The New Testament, as really well said in Philippians 3, 1-11, is that salvation is found in Christ. You are not saved by doing good things. In Christ, everything has changed. I fear many Christians today continue to try to be old covenant people. Like we're always trying to be old covenant people. And by the way, we don't do that very well. In fact, we don't do it any better than the Jews do. Probably worse, right? And by the way, the Jews, if you've read anything from the Old Testament, you will recognize the word stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked people. That's what they were. And they were following it better than we are. You can't get to salvation by following the law. You can't do it. It's not possible. And you can't do it by adding it to Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing. Because Jesus plus anything is idolatry. Do you understand that Jesus plus anything is idolatry? Even the covenant of circumcision. Say it, Paul. I don't know why I said say it. I never usually do King James Version. I just felt like that was the moment for some reason. Humanity is incurably sinful. God requires sinlessness. And God, in His grace, has remedied this situation through the work of Jesus Christ. Period. Full stop. Something in addition to that. 
There are many who will say there are other things you should have. They'll say something like, Jesus Christ plus baptism. Well, baptism is good. Yeah, it's really, really good. Until you decide that it is necessary for salvation. Because that's a work of the hand. It's a work of the flesh. It's part of the physical world. Baptism is wonderful. It's an incredible sign that you have accepted and submitted your life to Christ. But it is not required because it's an act of the flesh. Now you substitute anything in there. Communion is not required for salvation. Why? Because it's an act of the flesh. You see, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 is the passage that helps us understand what the gospel is and what it is not. It sets the parameters for all of our belief. Our salvation is on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. There are not many ways to God. There is only Jesus and Jesus It's interesting because as I have preached on holiness over the years, I have been, um, actually, some people have said to me, you preach a work salvation because I say we should be holy. I do not preach a work salvation. Our salvation is through Jesus Christ. But when you're saved, when you have true saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to do good stuff. Because he's changing the inside out. Like that's going to be visible. There's going to be fruit. Jesus said there's going to be fruit. You're not saved by the fruit. You can't even do the fruit without the salvation. I do not believe in work salvation. I do not believe that salvation is salvation is Jesus Christ plus works. No way. Salvation is through Christ alone. But the obedience follows by the power of the Holy Spirit in you when you accept Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus communion. It's not Jesus plus being part of the correct political persuasion. It's not Jesus plus being on the right side of history, whatever that even means. It's not Jesus plus anything. And it is only upon the words of, the Jesus, of Jesus and putting those words into practice that we build our house. So, I want to end today with a hymn. Uh, Rita and Bill, we're going to sing hymn 428. The words are going to be on the screen. I invite you to take the hymn because I want you to read the words as you sing. I'm going to pray now and as soon as the song is over, you're simply dismissed. God, May it be said about this church that we are built upon the rock of your words, of you. It is our prayer, Lord God, that this church would be known as a church in which we recognize saving faith is only through the grace of Jesus Christ. Full stop. We are not saved by works. We are not saved by what our flesh can do. We are saved. And our hope of salvation is only in you. Jesus' name.